Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's up, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the New Year Caribbean podcast. We are here to celebrate, honor, and remember ourselves. Thank you for being part of this journey of learning and remembering to remember, as said by the great Mama Coco. This episode, we are going to be jumping into the history of John Canoe. John Canoe, John Canoe. This is a festival that has been part of the Caribbean landscape, the Central American landscape, and the U.S. landscape for centuries. But what is the history behind it? What do we know about it? And where does it exactly come from? This is a quintessentially Caribbean Christmas tradition. So we're going to kick off our Junkanoo Jam Session series with the history of Jamaican Junkanoo. In this series, we'll also be covering the history of Junkanoo in the Bahamas, in Central America, and in the USA. This is something entirely unique to our region. And whilst it grows and flourishes in certain areas like in the Bahamas, it is dying in other areas like in Jamaica. How can we keep the spirit of Junkanoo alive whilst we are under the pressure of the westernized Christmas and Santa Claus? How can we keep this very specific African-based festival that surrounds the era of Christmas time alive? Let's talk about this history of Junkanoo. Junkanoo is described as a festival that was created by enslaved Africans for themselves. It honors a man called John Canoe. He was a chief of the Ahanta, which is a tribe from Ghana. He was also a general of a private army and had allied himself with the Prussians, which is now modern-day Germany, as they fought against the British and Dutch in Ghana in a very important post of Fredericksburg. Now, during this time, it was noted that John Canoe, which is his anglicized name, um, it is said that his actual name was John Kwao, which is a Ghanaian name. He said he would never allow any white man to rule his nation. And the story of how John Kanu or John Kwao, of him defeating and expelling the British and the Dutch, traveled across the Atlantic and landed in the plantations in the Caribbean. And upon hearing this news, many from his tribe and many not joined together in celebration and in honoring of this man. This story of African resistance spread across the Caribbean and implanting itself in places like the Bahamas, like Belize, like Nicaragua, 
also going up all the way to North Carolina. It was said to be seen in Georgia, in Virginia, um, in New Orleans. It can also now be found in parts of Florida. It was said that it used to be celebrated in Suriname, in Barbados. But even looking at so many elements of the masquerade that we can find, I often wonder if there are interconnections between the Junkanoo festivals that you find in the Bahamas, in Jamaica, in Nicaragua, Honduras, Belize, and um, North America. And even the Christmas masquerade that you find in St. Lucia because there are so many commonalities. But before we get into that, okay, let's go back to understanding like why we do what we do. Why does Junkanoo exist? And when actually did it start? One of the things that we have to look at is that, as we've discussed loads of times, the banning of the drum, the stifling or outright outlawing of enslaved Africans gathering together in groups, if it is to play music, sing, dance, honor, lime, jam, do whatever, was very much instilled into the laws across the Caribbean. Beating the Côte Noir, the French-controlled countries, or if it was in the different slave codes that were developed from since the 1600s in Barbados, which influenced the slave codes in Jamaica, the slave codes in the USA, especially when enslaved people were only allowed mainly to just go to church. That was pretty much the only gathering that they were legally allowed to venture into. But except on Christmas Day, sometimes Boxing Day, and New Year's. So it turns out that enslaved people in Jamaica in the 1700s used this time of Christmas to celebrate and honor John Canoe and creolizing the name and adding their own extra sauce to start calling it John Canoe, right? So they used this time where they had the freedom to sing, to dance, to play their drums, do their own vibe to celebrate and honor this African leader who was in the forefront of African resistance back home. Who had actually won and defeated the Europeans. Also, many scholars have looked into John Kunun saying that it coincides with the New Yam Festival, which what Europeans in Ghana call Black Christmas. Um, so this is something where maybe it was a combination of the two, but using that time as an opportunity to tap into their own beliefs and celebrations that they used to do back home and to celebrate this man who had done gangster things. An essay that has been instrumental in helping me put together my research for this podcast episode is an essay by Kenneth Bilby. And the name of the essay is called Masking the Spirit in the Junkanoo Festivals of the Caribbean. And what he's doing in his research um, for that essay, which I'm happy to put into the show notes if you guys want to read it in its fullness because it's absolutely amazing, is that he's trying to find the spiritual connections inside of Junkanoo because a lot of people think okay it's just a festival it's just using a masquerade and dancing and singing it doesn't really have any spiritual connotations going on like that and in his research he says this unlike the pre-Lenten Catholic carnivals that were appropriated and refashioned by Africans in several parts of the Americas this festival was created by the enslaved themselves Over time, it was accepted by the ruling whites who came to view it as a necessary evil, a kind of safety through which the simmering tensions on slave plantations periodically released and kept from exploding. Now, I've heard about this before that sometimes slave owners and the ruling whites would be like, give them their time. Let them cool off. 
they vex let me just give them the five minutes to drum and dance it off and they use John Canoe as a means for enslaved Africans to do that so in his research he goes on to say that he has found difficulties in finding people that can really delve into the spirituality behind John Canoe and he goes on to say this it is hardly surprising then that most scholars who have had actual experience with contemporary performances and practitioners tend to represent Jankanu as being devoid of religious significance. What remains probably the most comprehensive study of Jankanu as a pan-Caribbean phenomenon to date, the art historian Judith Betzelheim concludes that this tradition is fundamentally secular in nature. In a later publication, she maintains this position, arguing that the evidence suggests that John Canoe is a secular festival. To say a festival is secular, she continues, means above all that it does not systematically address gods or spirits in a uniform or codified manner. The research of Kenneth Bilby goes to kind of debunk this theory, okay? In accordance to one of the scholars, Orlando Patterson, who is an amazing historian with so much research about Caribbean history, Orlando Patterson, remember the name, um, he speaks about the influences of Yoruba in the Junkanu festival, looking at Egungun, also the Mo festival, which is an Igbo festival, and the Homo festival of the Ga, which is from Ghana. All of these things intertwine the veneration of ancestors in this cultural practice and that he can find this interwoven in Junkanu. But we're going to dig up some more about that. Okay? Goes on to say in that research that in terms of looking at American Junkanu, so the Junkanu that you found in the Carolinas and in Virginia and so on, you could find more influences from Yoruba as this is where most of the enslaved were taken from West Africa and brought across the USA at that time. It's really important to look at how in which or when and where in which enslaved Africans were taken from different um, ports at different time periods. So for example, there are certain times where Cuba got this huge influx of Lukumi people, Yoruba people, right? One of the first people that came across, enslaved people who came across to St. Lucia were from Senegal because the governor at the time had his link up in Senegal, right? So even looking at how, when you look at documentations of things popping up, it's important to look at the time period of when and where enslaved people came from at the time. Helps us to connect the dots. So before we move on, um, we're going to take a little musical break and we're going to jump into Junkanoo in Jamaica. And I believe that this is where the roots of Junkanoo has come from. But before we do that, let's have a little piece of Junkanoo music from Jamaica.
I know about y'all, but Jungkook's music is a flex for me. Anywho, so let's jump into the history of Jungkook in Jamaica. Now, Jungkook is dying in Jamaica, but there are some pockets I've been told in St. Mary's and St. Elizabeth in Jamaica that have been keeping Jungkook alive. My Jamaican posse, please let me know where you can find the best Jungkook in Jamaica. Let's go back to 1774. So they have this idiot man. That's how it's called him. Anytime I read his stuff, I just get vexed. But Edward Long, one of the fathers of racism in terms of comparing black people to monkeys and chimpanzees, he was this oh abhorrent racist. He was a savior in Jamaica. Um, in the later 1700s, he wrote a book called The History of Jamaica in 1774. And there are two volumes. It's a tough read because the man is just ridiculously... He speaks about things about Africa when he's never even been there, right? But he had documented a lot of history about Jamaica. Now, as I do, I read things. I, I, I put on my Caribbean lens. I remove the white racist man lens <laughs> okay when i'm reading some of this stuff but he goes on to say this in the towns during the christmas holidays they have several tall robust fellows dressed up in grotesque habits and a pair of ox horns on their head sprouting from the top of a horrid sort of visor or mask which about the mouth is rendered very terrific with large boar tusks the masquerader carrying a wooden sword in his hand is followed with numerous crowds of drunken women <laughs> who refresh him frequently with a cup of aniseed water. That's interesting. I've never heard of that. Whilst he dances at every door, bellowing out John Canoe with great vehemence. This dance is probably an honorable memorial of John Connie, a celebrated cabocero at Tres Puntas in Aksim on the Guinea coast, which flourished about the year 1720. His dates are a bit off, but what he's talking about is John Canoe and Aksim on the Guinea coast. This is speaking about Ghana. What Edward Long is assuming here in terms of the chants and so on is them celebrating the victories of John Canoe that happened in Ghana at that time. What Edward Long is talking about here is the falling of Fort Fredericksburg and how John Canoe is now leading it and the Europeans have had to leave, the British and the Dutch have had to leave and the man is running the thing, right? So some of the John Canoe characters in Jamaica have been associated with Ashanti warriors. So when you're talking about with the sword in his hand, right? So seeing the swordsman of the Ashanti is the horned-headed man. And the commander is the Pichipashi. So the Pichipashi is the one you'd see with the stripped fabrics layered on like a suit, which I think you'd find in St. Lucia. You'd find them, I find them in so many different versions and variations across the Caribbean, the, the stripped fabrics. Um, so the commander became Pichipachi and Canoe himself was a househead. So househead is the character that you'd see with um, a kind of colonial house on top of his head. So it is looking at how this interlaying of Ashanti warriors, anti-colonialism within our masquerade. And when he says it's grotesque, I'm like, yeah, hell yeah, we will. Because we're not here to be pretty for European entertainment, right? So that was written in 1774. 
Let's fast forward 30 years later, about, it's Christmas Eve, 1812, and there's this Moravian missionary, and his name is John Becker, and he's in Jamaica, doing his work, indoctrinating Christianity to the Jamaican population. And he writes, he's annoyed, huh? and I love this quote so much, it brings me so much joy. Scarcely was our worship closed before the heathen Negroes on the estate began to beat their drums, to dance, and to sing in the most outrageous manner. The noise lasted all night and prevented us from falling asleep. So the man get no sleep, right? So the following day, he continues to complain. Okay? So apparently... The unsaved on this estate were dancing, singing, drumming, doing their thing all night, right? Um, and he goes on to say, After breakfast, I went down and begged the Negroes to desist. But the answer was, What, Massa, are we not to dance and make merry at Christmas? We always did so. I represented to them that this was not the way to celebrate the birth of our Savior and expressed my surprise at having heard the word of God for so many years. They still continued their heathenish customs. All I could say was in vain. I love this so damn much. I love this so damn much. Real talk. In terms of, you know, there's so much in what he's saying there that these unsafe people were one didn't give a damn about no laws right didn't give a damn about hiding their drums and they're singing and they're dancing and they're chanting and then two they had been taught christianity right the word of the bible for so many years and still they could not separate themselves from that and the fact that even though the priest was supposed to be someone that's highly respected in the community and his Please were not enough to separate them, sever them from that. You know, I love that quote so, so, so much. These are the little things that bring me joy when I'm doing my, my research. So one of the things, so moving on, there's another account that from six years earlier and looking at how John Canoe had even developed even further from Edward Long's account. And it says here, written by Matthew Scott, who was in Kingston at the time. And he says, And as I looked towards the piazza, which was gaily lit up, I could see it was crowded with male and female Negroes in their holiday apparel, with their wholesome clear brown black skins, not blue-black as they appear in our cold country, and beautiful white teeth and sparkling black eyes. Now, what he's saying here is hugely hugely problematic there's so much layered issues in just those two little sentences and that in itself is another podcast episode in terms of colorism in terms of their descriptions of us of our ancestors but let's move on and let's try and find these pockets of joy anyway burn all of them among them were several gumby men and flute players well gumby gumbe all of that means the drum, right? So those who are using the African drum, Gumby men and flute players, and John Canoes, as the Negro Jack Pudding is called, the latter distinguishable by wearing false white faces and enormous shocks of horsehair fastened onto their woolly pates. Their character hovers between somewhere that of a harlequin and a clown as they dance about and thread through the Negro groups, quizzing the women and slapping the men. 
and at Christmas time, the Grand Negro Carnival. They don't confine their practical jokes to their own color, but take all manner of comical liberties with the whites equally with their fellow bondsmen. This day was the first of the Negro Carnival or Christmas holidays. And at the distance of two miles from Kingston, the sound of Negro drums and horns, the barbarous music and yelling of the different African tribes, and the more mellow singing of the set girls came off upon the breeze loud and strong. Now this one is also quite detailed, but also this kind of removal in terms of him just seeing the characters just like a Harlequin or a clown, because most of these things would not have been fully explained to them, or maybe they just didn't care. But in terms of how, you know, Jamaicans there, amongst all of those laws, took control over the streets, took ownership of the streets because that was their time. Christmas was their time to do their thing, bring out the drum, the flute, the fife, whatever, right? And even spend time in making these, you know, masquerade costumes, even with their very little means, and come to the streets and make something magical. And to sing and to dance and to be even, what's the word? And even to be confrontational and to, to make jokes and to ridicule um, not only their brethren and them, but also the upper class whites. So looking at how Junkanoo was also used not as only a means to tap into spiritual practices, but to celebrate oneself, to celebrate African resistance, and also to confront the colonial landscape. I think that's gangster. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So we're going to go jump back into Kenneth Bilby's research. Because this man went in. He traveled to so many different countries researching Chunkanu. And he went down to St. Elizabeth in Jamaica in a district of Coca. I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from his essay so you can get a deeper insight to Junkanoo in Jamaica. In the country district of Coca, nestled in the Nassau Mountains of Western Jamaica, public celebrations of Christmas have traditionally been held in and around two particular areas named after the community's 19th century founders. These sections of the community, known as Rodentown and Browntown, are inhabited by the Cocas, quote-unquote, old people. So old are some of these members of the community that they require special care. Rodentown and Browntown, in fact, are cemeteries. Here lie not only the original founders and apical ancestors of Coca, Benjamin Roden and Bob Brown, many of their descendants as well, who are also remembered by name. Near each of these ancestral towns is a sacred clearing consisting of a traditional quote-unquote dance ground and a healing ground known as Big Yard and Brown Yard. These cleared areas have for generations served as sites for community ceremonies revolving around Mayal, 
So Mayal is an African religion that traveled across and landed in Jamaica. And we can find that that's intertwined into modern-day Jamaican revivalism that has elements of Christianity and Mayalism. I found loads of examples of references of Mayal being used by enslaved Africans. And it was also illegal in Jamaica. So ceremonies involving Mayal, a term of unknown derivation referring to possession by spirits, including those departed ancestors. The ancestors of Coca, honored by their descendants, have on a whole shown the benevolence towards the living. Until recently, they have returned regularly in the bodies of living dancers, known as the Mayal man or Mayal woman. So this whole ancestors coming back into the bodies of the living to sing, to dance, to be in commune with those who are alive. I think that's so beautiful. But let's go on. And in this form, they have used their knowledge of herbs and their special powers to tend to the needs of the living. You see, it gets even better. Healing, spiritual afflictions, and offering solutions to the other problems. Throughout the years, as the need arises, they have continued to be drawn into the cares and concerns of their living descendants by the rhythms of the Gumbe drum. So we remember that guy from 1806 says the Gumbe drum, right? And the special Mayal Sing, which is a spirit-invoking song that they have taught them and in this way have remained a part of daily life. Jeez! Sometimes I feel like I just need a moment to absorb these things, you know. Goes on to say, in such a setting, how could the ancestors not be part of the major holiday to which the entire community looks forward to as every year draws to an end? After all, the single most important local celebration of the Christmas season, centering on the unveiling of the house headdress itself known as the Junkanu, and the accompanying music and dance was passed on from these older people themselves. In addition to being Mayal specialists, Benjamin Roden and Bob Brown were also masters, quote-unquote, or builders of the Junkanu headdress, and renowned Junkanu dancers. They are revered as founders not only of the community of Koka, but of its Junkanu tradition as well. Buried alongside them are several of the successors they taught, most of whom also once served as spirit mediums in the local tradition, who are remembered today as outstanding Junkanu builders, dancers, drummers, and singers in their own right. The coca variant of Junkanoo performance differs conspicuously from the standard forms found elsewhere in Jamaica today. Okay, that's a very important point. A very important point looking at even within, yes, Junkanoo in Jamaica is getting smaller and smaller every year. But how this specific variant of Junkanoo is specific or unique to this area of Jamaica only. So... As Kenneth Bilby's amazing essay, I told you all this essay was bad, right? Goes on to say that this, the Coca version, for instance, has retained several characteristic features mentioned in the 18th and 19th century descriptions of Jamaican Junkanoo that appear in theirs. The Coca version, for instance, has retained several characteristic features mentioned 
in 18th and 19th century depictions of Jamaican junk canoe that appear to have been almost lost everywhere else, such as a square or rectangular gumbe drum played with the hands, the leading dancer who wears a house headdress, and the female singers who play a prominent role. But it also displays important similarities. For one thing, like the other varieties, it occurs in the context of the street parades or processions. Yet, there is a significant difference here as well. For these processions in the cocoa tradition represent the tip of the iceberg as it were. Traditionally, only after the break of day on Christmas did the Junkanoo performers of coca leave the ancestral confines of the big yard and the immediate surrounding area to begin a procession through the wider community. Could you imagine even like even looking at when we look at the deeper elements of so many of the masquerade festivities that happen in the Caribbean and how they have these kind of smaller, almost secret societies where they are honoring and preserving and they do something first it's a form of ritual that happens first before they take to the streets spending some time in new orleans and working with some of the stilt walkers or moko jumbies whatever you want to call them that are in new orleans one of the things i learned this year is that they do not get dressed in public so they do not mount their stilts in public no one is to see their feet how that they mount onto the stilts it's a thing that they keep very 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 private be it spiritual maybe they don't want somebody to teach their ideas but looking at how there's so much in terms of secrecy made to preserve as long as it is shared to an upcoming generation so it continues to say hey only after completing the circuit of their own community did they carry the festivities out to neighboring communities and in his essay he continues to say how these performers from the coca district are entertaining the crowds and dancing and accepting donations but this community of people outside of the district of coca would not necessarily connect or have any knowledge to the spiritual aspects of the origins of john canoe because it's not passed down to them he continues to say this for those training the tradition, these deeper meanings are as clear as day, flowing as they do from the immediate life experience. Virtually every aspect of the Junkanoo tradition in Koka is permeated with explicit spiritual meanings, from the building of the house headdress to the songs, dancings, and offerings of food and rum to the ancestors on Christmas and New Year's Day. This seasonal tradition, after all, is part and parcel of the larger ancestor-focused community religion practiced all year round by the Gumbe drummers and the Mayal dancers of Koka. In Kenneth Bilby's essay, he gives an account of a ritual that happened during Christmas time within this community. And it says this, Early on Christmas Eve, the entire community is summoned to a major Gumbe play or Mayal dance by the blowing of the conch shell. As one long-time participant told me, you see that conch shell there? Them blow it that everybody knows say, them I go play tonight. The living hair and the dead hair.
as the night wears on, the time for the Junkanoo headdress to turn out, quote-unquote, to be unveiled and brought out for public display after weeks of concealment in a specially constructed shack guarded over by the watchful spirits of the ancestors. Down at the two main family graveyards of Rodentown and Browntown, the ancestors are fed with white rice, the blood of a chicken, and a specially prepared concoction known as egg punch, a drink that was closely associated with Christmas festivities in Jamaica during the 19th century. That kind of sounds like eggnog, no? Or milk punch, or punch of cream. I wonder what's in it. And lastly, back up at the neighboring dancing ground, the mild man and his assistants remove the sheet that has up to this point covered the junk canoe as the house headdress itself is known and carry the beautifully decorated object out into the open for all to see, placing it on a bench in the central performing space in Big Yard, known as the Ring. It goes on to proceed with a song. The ancestors too are welcomed and honored with songs of their own. Shortly before dawn, the leading Maya man and Junkanoo builder, with the help of his assistants, hoist the house headdress onto his head and proceeds down to the cemeteries of Rodentown and Browntown, where he dances and displays his creation and so that the beauty can be enjoyed by the entire community. I mean, isn't this beautiful? It's like, um, in terms of just the secrecy behind it, the building of something so intricate and stunning, going to this ans- literal ancestral ground and making an offering and honoring to them to those who created it and how it's handed down from generation to generation and before they go on the road and celebrate and sing with the rest of the other communities they have to honor the ancestors first right so kenneth bilby's essay goes on to say after daybreak the crowd moves out onto the road marching along with the musicians and leading junkanoo dancer through the different sections of the community while singing yet other songs. Only after December 25th is the Junkanoo Ensemble allowed to venture out to perform in other communities. Finally, sometime in January when Christmas spirit has begun to fade, the ancestors provide indications that the time has come to mash up the Junkanoo. The last Gombe play is called and the master of the Junkanoo, the mild man who built it, places the headdress on his head, carries it down to Rodentown and Browntown, where he performs a final dance for the ancestors. Before daylight, the spirits of the ancestors enter the bodies of younger dancers, who then tear the headdress to pieces, thus bringing the annual cycle to its proper end. Thoughts of the Junkanoo need not occupy the community's attention again until the next Christmas season approaches it. This, like, it does it not just keep getting, like, better and better and more powerful? And just the importance of how the fact that the, the Junkanoo headdresses are not saved. So how it is that we need the elders to pass on that knowledge every single year. And if it is not passed on, it is literally just going to die, just mash up and die, right? So lastly... In Kenneth's um, research about Jamaica, I wanted to add that he says, as I was later to find out, coca is not the only place in Jamaica where ancestors regularly take part 
in the Christmas celebrations of the living or have done so within living memory. I know of at least three different rural communities in other parts of St. Elizabeth and in the neighboring parish of Manchester where related Junkanoo traditions tied ancestral mile rites and family burial grounds and have either survived in attenuated form or are clearly remembered by older people. Yet in another parish, St. Catherine, very similar and still vibrant rites for community ancestors take place in the context of the local Buru Festival, a Christmas masquerade historically related to Junkanoo, which today in this particular community still features African-derived drumming, dancing, singing, offerings of food and rum to the old Sumadi, or the old people, and non-stop parading from dawn till dusk on routes carefully chosen by some of the same ancestors. So you are literally walking the path of your ancestors in celebration together. Isn't this just, the more you know, right? Nor am I the only researcher to have encountered Christmas festivities in Jamaica in which unambiguously spiritual gestures and meanings, clear expressions of African religiosity remain alive. At least one other writer, Honor Ford Smith, mentions the existence of similar rituals on the other side of the island in St. Thomas. Now, what I know St. Thomas, they have dinky mini and a lot of elements of Maya can still be found in St. Thomas. St. Thomas is another very powerful parish in Jamaica. But it says where Junkanoo performers still pay homage to their ancestors by dashing white rum onto the graves of their ancestors. Man, this is a lot, right? This is a lot, a lot. Definitely so much to digest. And this brings us to the close of part one of our Junkanoo Jam sessions. There is so much to talk about from Junkanoo in the Bahamas, Junkanoo in Belize, Honduras, Nicaragua, and also in the southern USA. There's so many aspects of Junkanoo that we have to go through in order for us to have a complete and concise understanding of this African festival that has reached so many corners of our region, but is dying in some places and flourishing in others. How can we keep this culture going? So I hope for this festive season, you drop a little white crumb for the ancestors, the ancestors who were celebrating African anti-colonial resistance in the motherland, celebrating how our ancestors were only allowed to celebrate and be themselves only at Christmas time and how they use that time to tap into their African spiritual practices, their African cultural practices in terms of reclaiming space, entering white spaces, tapping into their culture and doing so unapologetically. Junkanoo is joyous. Junkanoo is empowering. Junkanoo is ancestral legacy. So yeah, man, we can have Santa Claus and all of them things, but then we have Junkanoo too. See you in the next episode where we continue with our Junkanoo Jam sessions. Mm-hmm.